property management is a thankless job. If you suck at it, you're gonna get fired. And if you're really good at it, you're gonna get fired because they're gonna sell the property. So it's a very difficult job to make money in. So why don't you make your job a little bit easier? And there's a couple of ways that you could do that. TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid, and thank you so much for tuning in to this special interview episode, where today I am joined by Gino Barbaro, the man, the myth, the legend, the king of multifamily real estate investing education. As an entrepreneur, he grew his real estate portfolio to over 2,000 doors and $250 million in assets under management. Prior to that, he owned an Italian restaurant for over 20 years and was affectionately known as the pizza guy. He met Jake in 09, and together they purchased their first deal in 2013. Gino left the restaurant in 2016 to go full-time in multifamily. Gino and his partner Jake launched the Jake and Gino community in 2016, which has become the premier multifamily real estate education community looking to help others invest in multifamily real estate. He has three best-selling books that he has authored, Wheelbarrow Profits, The Honeybee, and Family Food and Friars. Currently, he's living in St. Augustine, Florida with his beautiful wife, Julia, and their six adorable kids. How old are they? 24 to 9. God bless you. I have one. We were one and done. So he's 10. <laughs> I'm good. He's got my ADHD. Thanks. I, I want to correct a couple of things you said. The first thing is I'm a legend in my own mind. I'm a legend in no one else's mind, especially my wife. So let's get that straight. First all, so, right, all right. The second Fair thing enough. is, yeah, and, and I always break my investing career. Over the last couple of years, I've been really thinking about this life before Jake and life after Jake. So life before Jake was a little weird because I had the shiny object syndrome. My first deal back in 2002 was a triplex. And it was beginner's luck. It was, it was awesome. I, I found a good deal. But then after that, mobile home park, strip center, a couple of duplexes, actually, ironically, up in Rochester. And then I met Jake. And then I got clear. The whole map, the process, we figured out was buy right, manage right, finance right, which was our method. But it's really one of those things where it's been a long journey. And for me, you're talking about NOI and you're talking about, you know, in multifamily, when you're an entrepreneur, I think people get into real estate, they don't look at it as a business. And I had that, show, what shall we say, that experience saying that restaurants and property management are, are pretty similar. It's customer service. It comes down to taking care of the customer and having empathy towards that customer and really trying to deliver value. And, and that's where I saw it. That's why I got into multifamily because I, I like dealing with residents. We don't call them tenants, they're residents. We try not to call them units, they're apartment homes. I think that's some of the things you need to start thinking about when you get into this multifamily business. At Jake and Gino, we like to say we create multifamily entrepreneurs because that's what you're doing. You're building a business here. You're not just becoming a landlord and always focus that that resident is the number one priority for your business. Put in a different way for anybody listening, you know, Stephen Covey says, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And I think as an apartment owner, as someone who, who has rentals, 
it's got to be tough getting up at eight o'clock in the morning, having your hot water heater not working when you had to go, you got to go on a job interview and, and they call the landlord and the landlord doesn't respond. There's something happens. We all make mistakes. I think what you're trying to do in business is you're trying to really listen to that customer and have the emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is going by the wayside as we speak, mm-hmm. you know, but it's very difficult having property management, try to deal with that. Because these people are overreacting. They're not yelling at you. They're yelling at their situation. So if you can understand that and, and try to listen to them and try to be proactive with property management. So when an issue does come up, you at least have the benefit of the doubt that you've helped them out. And to think about it, I always equate it to like the electric companies. You know, you have your power on 29 out of the 30 days. You lose your power for that 30 minutes. They're the devil. But they've provided service for the last 29 and a half days. And it's the same thing as property managers. So understand that. It, sometimes it can be a thankless job, but it can also be a rewarding job because you are creating memories for people. You are giving people a place to live. And I think that can't be forgotten. You can't lose yourself just in spreadsheets and just in numbers. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, speaking of spreadsheets and numbers, that will reflect in your rent collection rate, your renewals, all of the other things, because like it or not, tenants that stay will make you more money than tenants that leave. All the costs involved in the downtime of lost rent, of, of doing a turn or a make ready, that is opportunity cost that takes a year or two to make back. If they just stay there, then those bills are paid. You know, if, if you can get a ton of renewals, mm. get the money in on the top line. Like, yes, every dollar you save in costs, we talk about all the time on the show, every dollar you save in costs is like $2 to your top line. Great. But you can only cut so far before you value engineer all the value out of whatever you're doing. Like there's a point where mm-hmm. doing something to cut and save has a negative impact on the overall well-being of the business. And I think that that attitude in and of itself is a lost art. You know, you, you talk about the emotional intelligence. There's people out there who just want the cheapest, quickest Band-Aid to put on whatever it is that they're doing, and it eventually hurts their business. Now, it's a different conversation if they're going to buy a property and hold it for two or three years and get rid of it. But if you're in it for the long haul, you're in it for the quality, you're going to buy and hold and and run that asset and operate that asset for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the conversation is completely different than the guy who's just looking to make a quick buck and get out. And I think that, you know, I'm I'm not calling anybody out on on the carpet because there is money to be made doing that. And there is a value to it in the community and it generates jobs and income for businesses and all the other stuff. But it's, it's, a, uh, it's a pretty brutal cycle, or at least it can be. Even as you're doing that, though, Andy, and you're flipping properties, you can still maintain a quality property management experience. There's not to say that you don't, and it's actually beneficial. So then when you do sell it, you're actually selling a business that's marketable. You're selling a business with value. So you're selling a business with systems and processes. And as you're talking about this, what can the listener do to actually create that experience, I would say the first thing you can do if you haven't done it is create some type of customer journey. We had a gentleman named Joey Coleman on our show. He wrote a book, Never Lose a Customer in 30 Days. And we had him on, I think, three times. And what I love about it, he actually wrote one for employees as well, Never Lose an Employee in 30 Days. What I love about his whole process is you have to understand there is a customer experience. And every company has this. From the very first touch point that you have an employee, to where they become, he has the eight phases, it's the eight A's. From assessing the very first touch point you have, does that, does that customer walk into this, to, to, your, to your property management office? Do they pick up the phone? Do they see you online? All the way up 
to the advocate, which they're raving fans. How do you get them there? And as you're saying this, Andy, the important thing to understand is, I read a stat, I think it's about 70% of people who do not renew their leases, it's not because of rent going up, it's because of customer service defects. And sometimes it's not even the property manager's fault. There may be a leaky toilet that the resident never said anything to the property manager, but it just was gnawing them and bothering them and bothering them. And when it came time to renewal, they don't know why they didn't renew, but they just didn't renew. But if the property manager had a system in place where every three months I'm going to go check up and I'm going to go walk in there and say, hey, how is everything? What can we do for you? Oh, by the way, I've got this toilet. You're being proactive. And what Joey Coleman does in the book is he really lays it out of starting from that very first assess phase all the way to the advocate. And I am a true believer of this because I had one restaurant for over 20 years. And I didn't have any of these eight phases. We won it. We were, we, we were mom and pop. We were winging it every day. And it was just transactional. And that's what a lot of mom and pop operators in the multifamily space do. They don't have it and they can't scale. and They can't figure out why. And I wish I had an assess phase. When somebody walks into the restaurant, how do you greet them? When they call on the phone, how do you greet them? How do you deliver it? You know, how are you making those touch points? Are you sending out emails? Are you sending out gift cards? Are you sending out happy birthdays? What different touch points are you doing? Are you using texts? Are you using snail mail? Are you using, you know, regular, whatever it is? And he talks about it in the book. And as you're talking about this, you're like, wow, I can systematize this and I can try to eliminate a lot of the holes in my business by doing this, by being proactive in the property management space. That's amazing. And it ties in really well with the show. So pro proactive decision-making and looking at what the decision today is going to cost you throughout the entire period of time you're going to own that is huge, but we never touch on the customer side of it. What you just said is huge because that's nothing that we ever discuss because that's not my wheelhouse, right? That's not my, where my knowledge base comes from. That's not my experience. I'm very much a technical, like building materials guy. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. That's where I grew up. I understand how they work. I understand the headaches because they were all my headaches for decades. I don't miss it. <laughs> uh, but that's awesome. So you and your partner have done this for a decade. You guys have proven that you have the fundamentals in place to really do the business the right way, where we see a lot right now uh, of operators struggling, syndications struggling, because they operated without fundamentals, because at 3%, they didn't need them. Fundamentals didn't matter. You don't need a reserve. We're just going to take a note for 3% and fix that problem. Well, when the cost of capital is doubled or tripled, that, that game is now completely different. So. Why don't you take me through kind of your journey when you're doing uh, an acquisition and an asset upgrade, let's say, when you're coming in, whether you're going to turn it immediately or whether you're going to just manage it. Where do you see those, those fundamental differences and, and how is that impacting your business and your portfolio today versus what some of these other companies are struggling with? Like the you're, answer you're to the your, expert. This is yours. I'm not, like I said, once again, I'm not an expert. I'm, and I'm constantly learning as well. But the answer to that question is it depends about upgrades because right now it depends upon the market cycle. Five and six years ago, it was valuation with renovation. That's what people are doing. They were renovating because they were buying at a certain price point. Now it's valuation with operation. But let's pull it back even further. And the reason why Jake and I had an amazing 2023, we closed on over 300 units. And it's just me, my partner, and we're not raising capital. It was all internal. It's because our framework. It's buy right, 
finance right, and manage right. Oh, it's a three-legged framework. It's a wheelbarrow. And you look at the two back legs. When you buy the asset, the asset's in place, right? You bought that asset. That's the price. Once you financed it with fixed rate, long-term financing. Wow. Who would thought buying stabilized assets on bridge debt was a good idea? Now looking back at it, it was insane. And Jake and I are like going, how, how are these deals working? Or well, they're not working. But at the same point, once you do those two, and Jake and I are using a type of bridge, bridge product, I wouldn't call it bridge, but we're using loan to cost with community banks or with credit unions, and they're five-year products. So we have five years to renovate these assets. And within five years, we can refinance them out back to a community, or traditionally, we go to agency at that point. But what we're talking about on the show is the manage right, that wheel of the wheelbarrow, which is in constant motion. And you can take this framework, you can apply it to single family homes, you can apply it to buying a business, you can apply it to any kind of asset where you, when you're actually investing in it. And when we talk about the manage right portion, it depends on the asset right now. We've gotten some negative publicity going into assets that are so undervalued that you have to raise rents and have to just you know evict people. When you're buying an asset for a two bedroom, when rents are 700 bucks and they should be 1500 bucks, it's very difficult to raise it. So you have to do non-renewals. So you have to be very specific and targeted on each asset that you're buying. So that's, that's one thing. And it depends on the asset class as well. We're buying you know, B minus C assets where we're not going to go in and put granite countertops and spend a ton of money on the, the fixtures because those renters don't really want that. They want a safe, clean, affordable place with LVP flooring. They'll get the resurfaced countertops. We'll probably do kitchen cabinets, you know, the, the refacing of kitchen cabinets. We may spend, let's say, six or seven grand on an upgrade to upgrade a union if we have to go in, but we'll probably get a two to $300 rent bump on average. But it really depends upon what the resident needs and not what you're trying to accomplish. And then obviously your business plan, are you looking to hold these assets long-term or are you the flipper who in two years is going to flip out and you have 100 units, you may only do 30 or 40 test it, see if it works, and then say there's meat on the bone, I'm going to flip it to the next person. We don't want to do that. We want to buy really great assets in really great markets with really good median incomes, with really good unit mixes, buy them, fix them up with you know, properties that are you know, built in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s that are newer so that we can hold them for longer term. And that's what our strategy is. That's why we're really focused on the east part of Tennessee and we're looking for these assets. And we were fortunate in 2023 because in 2022, they weren't around. They were getting bought up by these huge groups, which now all of a sudden are having problems with bridge financing and their terms are coming due and their rate caps are so expensive. So understand the framework of buying these assets, being able to finance them. But then the really important part is how to manage these assets. Absolutely. And I think the management is a, a two-tiered question because there's asset management and there's property management and they need to cooperate. Love and that. You can't force a property manager. If it's a third party property manager, they're incentivized to not change their ways. They're incentivized by how they get paid to continue doing what they're doing the way they're doing it. Because if they do things the way an asset manager would want, if they do things to be more efficient, if they do things to require less repairs and less maintenance and less calls and less all of this other stuff, they get paid less, right? They're going to make that flat fee regardless. But then how do they charge an owner for a hot water tank or a toilet or a whatever if those things don't break while they're managing the unit, right? 
And they're not going to make a ton of money off it, but it's cash flow for them. And most of these property managers, when you get right down to brass tacks, they're not a profitable business entity. They're a cash flow based business entity that is just robbing Peter to pay Paul every single day of the week. Given that 95% of them are mom and pop operations that are just in the business every day and not on the business looking to scale, looking to grow, they're just putting out fires and running around like chickens with their head cut off. So the, the asset management piece and the property management piece, if you can self-manage that, if you can bring in an internal team, everybody I've ever worked with has had better results doing that than trying to change what their property manager is doing because there's no good way to force that change. And I see the finger getting pointed in these syndications now oh, the property manager screwed this up for us, or oh, the GC that was doing our renovation screwed this up for us. I don't think that that's true. I think you just didn't have the control in place that you needed to make that asset work the way it needed to in your pro forma. That's what let's, I think happened. Let's talk about a couple of ways to do that. But the first thing, once again, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Property management is a thankless job. If you suck at it, you're going to get fired. And if you're really good at it, you're going to get fired because they're going to sell the property. So it's a very difficult job to make money in. So why don't you make your job a little bit easier? And there's a couple of ways that you could do that. Be really proactive with them. We have what we call weekly pulses. We are, we're vertically integrated, so we manage our own properties. That's why we only, quote unquote, have 1,800 units currently, because we, can, we don't want to outgrow our infrastructure. These syndicators are third party. They were just outgrowing their infrastructure. And we look at it as a, as a business. If you look at 10 years, it's an average of 180 to 200 units a year. It doesn't seem like it's daunting, but it adds up. And when you're doing what we call weekly pulses, every week we have our property managers send out a weekly report of each property that we own. It's probably 25 or 30 going out every single week of every single property, the KPIs in the property, the key performance indicators. If you can't measure it, then you can't manage it. I don't want to know what delinquencies are April 1st for March. That makes no sense to me. I can't be proactive on that way. So for them, it's a benefit to property management if they collect the delinquencies. I want to know how many people came into the office as you know, what we call guest cards and how many people applied. What does that look like? Do we need to help you guys take care of that? What are evictions looking like? You, know, you track evictions. What are vacant, unrented? That's a number we're looking at. What are collections? If you do this weekly pulse every week and get on the call with them for 10 or 15 minutes, and I know most of you are going to say, well, my property management company doesn't do that. Most of them don't. The ones that are good will. And if you have your asset management, you made an excellent point. Asset management and property management are pretty confrontational because the property manager wants to spend 200 bucks on a ceiling fan when the asset manager is like, bro, I could get a ceiling for 89 bucks. I've got a budget here that I'm a fiduciary to my investors. The property manager is a fiduciary really to the residents and to the owner. But what you're talking about, there's that confrontation. So they need to be working on the same page. The asset manager needs to create a budget. The property manager needs to sort of work in tandem with the asset manager. And there's one other document that we use that really helps our whole portfolio. We call it a property log. Every single property has its own log. So we know on 123 Main Street, we striped and sealed it two years ago. The roof was done five years ago. Who is the electric company on that property? When did we clean out the gutters? When is the last power washing done? It has its own specific log to that property. So when you do have another property management company come in, it's right there. All the notes and everything's right there. The asset manager can take a look at that and say, hey, we need to budget for power washing this year or stripe and seal. Or crap, there's 30 air conditioning units. We need to change 10 this year. That's how you have that, that, that the discussion 
between both of those entities. And for syndicators to say that property management companies drop the ball, well, when you overpay on your property and you didn't put money aside and you can't fix certain things, there's an issue with that. And I think that's just really lazy for them to be, to be saying, to be blaming property management companies for that. I don't disagree with that at all. I think that a lot of people are just looking for scapegoats because they told people one thing, sold them a bill of goods, told them it was low risk because it was real estate. Forget the fact that you buy this thing leveraged, you got 80% on a, on a note with a bank, and then property value declines suddenly because cap rates skyrocket, you're upside down 30%. Your investors that just cashed, you know, all your LPs that went in are like, well, just sell the property, I'll take my money back. Yeah, well, the property's worth 30% less now. So you actually have no equity. So you're actually in the hole. The bank actually could collect from us on this in a lawsuit if they chose to. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. There's a lot of moving parts there that people are not aware of. And there's people out there now educating people on how to do LP investments and how to be a good GP and other stuff. But it's kind of too little too late. And when I see all these GPs last week literally flipping out because rate cuts were announced for next year, like this is going to solve all their problems. You're talking about maybe three quarters of a point if they do three reductions. That's not going to help you. Your, bu- your mm-hmm. lack of business fundamentals and understanding the business is the root of the problem. The macro, if your business plan relies on macro changes that you can't control, you don't have a plan. Your yes. business is not functional. Like, yes. I love guys like you and your partner who, who understand this, Gino. This is, this is, real estate is not a 10x game. Like, no offense to the guy who uses that phrase all the time. There's smoke and mirrors there that are now coming to light. And you need to respect other people's skin in this. If they don't understand it and you take their money and lose it, you're going to to own that forever. Like, people are not going to forget this particular phase of, of the economy, regardless of what the next 12 months bring for rate cuts and all the other stuff. A lot of people are not going to make it through this un- unscathed, right? So my, mm-hmm. my biggest thing right now as I look at this is if I was going to invest with somebody, if I was going to give somebody money, I would give somebody with a track record and a business plan who understands reserves and understands that deferred maintenance costs more if you defer it. Like there's a ton of mm-hmm. things that, that don't respect the time value of money or, or market fundamentals that have been done because they worked, right? The, the rising tide lifts all ships. Well, the tide is going out and now there's a lot of beached ships on the, on the shoreline with a lot of people left high and dry because they don't have a way out because their business was floated by free money. Like stupid ideas and bad business models like the electric scooters, like WeWork, spending too much money, no plan to ever make a profit. Like there is a cost to everything you do. You need to have a way to pay for the things that you're buying in a business. You can't just continue to leverage public capital or private capital to pay the bills and just rob here to pay Paul. There is a certain point where cash flow dries up because there's no profit and people will stop giving you money. And I think that's, that's mm-hmm. where a lot of these people are. So when you're, when you're looking at a property, when you're going in on the operation side, you said you're vertically integrated. So this is, this is really your, you know, wheelhouse, so to speak. Um, and your, I don't know if you, you target distressed properties or if you just look for, for solid fundamental properties. Just walk me through what that process looks like when you're evaluating a, uh, uh, anything from a 40-door to a, to a 300-door property. Um, what does that process look like for you guys? 
Andy, you should know that distressed properties are really value adds. Okay, value add was the, was the marketing term a couple of years ago. Now it's going back to the distressed. When I started in 2011, there was a lot of distress, brother, and, there, and it's coming back. And, and to answer that question, once again, it depends really on the market cycle. But what we're doing right now for us, creating that buy right criteria on the front end and understanding that when we buy this asset, we need to manage it. I, I, I'm really not that much smarter than anybody listening on this. I've just got more experience. I went through the last cycle. I saw what happened. I saw the problems. You can always buy real estate. You can't always sell it. And a lot of us learned in 08, 09, 2010 that debt was, debt was coming due, but asset prices were lower. Oh, wow. That sounds like what's going on right now. So I went through that pain. I had a property through that process. I couldn't get it refinanced. I had to work with the, bet, with the bank. I got a modification. But right now, when we're looking at an asset, we have our, what we call our buy right criteria. We want a certain median income, at least $50,000 in Tennessee. That denotes a certain type of renter. If you're going to be able to charge three times, three times rent, don't let the broker tell you you can raise rents if you don't know the median income's at 25000 bucks. So we like at least a $50,000 median income, and we've learned from experience. We bought a property with thirty-four, dollars $35,000 median income a couple of years ago in Kentucky. It was a difficult property. It checked a lot of the buy-right boxes. Now, right now, we're buying assets that are a little bit newer, 80s and newer, just because of the price points. Why buy something built in the 60s with you know, cast iron plumbing and with aluminum wiring when I can buy something that's a little bit newer and that's going to last a little bit more? We like unit mixes that are two beds. We love two beds. And we love townhomes as well. Uh, if they've got garages, even better. Hopefully, they've got covered decks. I hate decks because decks are just a nightmare to take care of. And breezeways. So breezeways, right now, we're covering a lot of our breezeways with vinyl. Because those are another maintenance nightmare. You don't look at it you know, for the short term, but when you're managing these assets, these are things you're looking for. Uh, we like properties that have washer dryer hookups, believe it or not. That's a great amenity for a lot of the residents that we have. If, if, if there's pools on the property, it depends on, on the property itself. With our 132 units we bought back in January, it was a 2005 build, didn't have it. We don't need it. The one we bought in July, 105 units, it was an 80s build. Beautiful asset. I mean, it's got a, we're going to put a nice dog park there. We're going to put a pickleball court there. It's got a really nice clubhouse, fitness center, great pool. Um, what else are we looking for in assets? Just trying to get really crystal clear on that. If there are one beds, we, it's not that we don't like one beds. You just got to be careful. One beds can be a little bit more transient. There's going to be a little bit more turnover, depending on where the market cycle you are. Three beds in our market, crush. We love three bedrooms. There's not that many in our market. Um, the most recent deal we bought, 2001 vintage, 96 units. We paid 72,000, 75,000 a unit because it was, wow. it was coming off a Litec contract. But it's a yeah, phenomenal deal. It's, but you know, there's, there's going to be some work on that because it's coming, years it's coming off the Litec. Yeah, but this thing, was, this thing was built so well. I mean, like, I mean, all the breezeways are done. It's brick. Oh, wow. uh, the, 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 the walkways are beautiful. I don't even, all I got to do is stripe and seal on the parking lot. It's got a nice pool. It's got a nice office. Uh, it's got all concrete. As far, I mean, it's got all metal stairs, stairwells and all. Um, it's a really nice asset. So when we're looking at it, we're looking at to see what the components cost to rehab this thing and what is the capital expenditures, what capex we need to put into this property. And I think for anybody listening to this, figure out what your criteria is, what that buy right criteria looks like to you. Because every market's different. Some markets with a $50,000 median income, you'd be like, that's Jets poverty level. And some markets, like, that's really good. Eastern uh, Tennessee, like though, that's a different can... animal. 
Yes. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, for us, brick, we love brick. We like pitch roofs. It's not to say that if we get a 1960s flat roof, uh, you know, with one beds, we're not going to look at it. We're still going to look at it, but we know the operational difficulties that we will have with that asset. And depending on our strategy, if we're looking to hold that long term, something built in the 60s, if we don't completely gut rehab or rehab it, you know, in 10 years from now, that asset's going to be like 70 or 80 years old. So we just have to be careful with, you know, that's our strategy. So if anybody look, looking to buy their asset right now, think about what your criteria is and always think about what your exit strategy is. Most investors don't think about the exit. They only think about, hey, I'm buying this thing. I'm just going to figure it out as I go along. Think about what you're going to do because you don't have to, you know, as they say in aeronautics when you're flying an airplane, takes off, takeoffs, they say, are, are optional. Landings are mandatory. You're going to land that deal, whether it's a refi or a sell, figure out what that looks like for you. Absolutely. That's huge. And I, we have something in my program that we do that's very similar where we, we encourage people when they're doing the getting ready to do the rehab where they look at how long they're going to hold it. Right. So what's the disposition plan? Are you going to hold it for two years, five years, 10 years, or you don't know indefinite, but look to make those decisions on what you're going to use and what you're going to put there based on who the tenant's going to be right? Always mm -hmm. build it around the worst case scenario, lowest common denominator tenant that's going to move into that unit and have pets or have lots of kids or have whatever and put things in place that minimize the amount of maintenance that's going to require when those tenants move out, whatever it is, whether it's LVT, LVP, whether it's a, a better quality paint, whether it's, um, you know, minimizing maintenance and, and, walk around just dumb check the box things like smoke detector batteries thermostat batteries um toilet flappers just things that you can avoid thanks to technology that you might pay 15 or 20 bucks more for but that will pay for themselves because of the lack of having a call based on that or the lack of having to replace it every turn as opposed to every two or three turns so mm -hmm. having a centralized not centralized, but having a centralized set of standards, right? A product specification list that says you need to be using these vendors because they give us benefits and perks, right? We spend this much money with them. They give us rebates. They give us discounts. They give us special pricing. They make sure that they hit our service requirements. As far as when I'm doing a rehab, they drop a pallet at the door. It has everything I need to turn that entire unit on that pallet. The guys can do the demo, take the junk out, bring the pallet inside, do the work. They don't have to run to the store. Windshield time is expensive, right? Having all that stuff pre-settled gives you some, some level of control, but it also keeps the, the, the stupid tax to a minimum because you're going to make sure everything matches throughout the entire property because everything has been specified ahead of time. You have your vendors lined up because you're buying from a vendor that isn't treating this property as a property. They're treating your company as a portfolio and you're buying across your entire portfolio of LLCs as the parent to make sure that you're getting a package price that looks at your buying power. So all of these things take place before the unit is even acquired. Like this, these are standards and processes that are set up to help you scale because when you're ready to buy and close on a property, you just pick up the phone and say, hey, I need you to come and do a due diligence walk with me and we're going we're gonna to make a list and you're going to get these units, but I need you here for a week. And your sales guy shows up and he walks those properties and he takes those lists, builds those things, and you don't worry about it again until the day construction starts. 
And that's the system that you really need to have in place if you want to be able to just move and move and move. And, you know, that was something that I was taught by a family office that went from, I think there were three or 4,000 doors when I started working with them. And in three years, they were at 12,000 doors. And I was on a plane for them every mm -hmm. three weeks. I was flying to South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, wherever they needed me to go, I would go. But they taught me the system and what worked and how it, what their priorities were and how to make it go. And my whole system is built off just stealing good ideas from people. Like, I didn't invent any of this stuff. I just, I, I, have, I had this crazy level of access to all these C-level operators. And I like making my job easy. I'll take good ideas and use them to get in the door with other guys. Why would I not? <laughs> it's not me saying so how this. Do you, it's not my company. How do you get them to work? And I, I agree. Everything you've said there is the, the benefit to investing in multifamily. That is it in a nutshell. Being able to systematize it, go into a 25-unit property where they're basic boxes. They're all the same thing. Instead of having 25 single-family homes, you've got a 25-unit that has basic fixtures. But how do you get property management to get on board with something like that because that's a no-brainer because property management when you take a property over we have our property actually i was we signed on, we signed on the deal last week on monday i flew up on monday last monday our, our team was there. We took over Monday. Our property managers were on site, closing windows, making sure thermostats were, were set, getting all the keys. But how do you get property management to work, walk, and lockstep? It's always trying to make them think that it's in their best interest. We're trying to make your job a lot easier. And you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to convince property management that, hey, we've got this system here. Let's utilize it together. How do you get them on board? So a lot of it comes to removing their headaches, right? You make their job easier by taking stuff out of their hands. So you have a schedule, whoever's going to run that turn. Like I've worked with companies who have the actual property manager on site, the leasing, leasing manager, right? The actual property manager runs mm -hmm. the job as a GC. I've had other ones where they hire third parties. And I actually had a client that hired me to come in and do it and do all their purchasing and procurement for nine months to do this rehab on a 328 door apartment complex right here in Webster. So it's a, it's an interesting beast and it comes down a lot of times to how are you paying the guys and incentivizing them in, in some cases, if it's internal, you can just say, we'll just do this and it is what it is, but you're hiring people sometimes from the existing property management company that's familiar with the property. You're bringing people in from outside, you're expanding your workforce. You have to train them into the company culture, but at the same time, you have to do like a change management process where you're dealing with them on a level that you need to take baby steps and bring them into this and teach them how to do it. Mm -hmm. A lot of it comes down to, we have one maintenance guy per hundred doors. We want that maintenance guy to not be behind a windshield. We want you to be working and being efficient. So here's the benefits to you. And it could be anything. What's the motivator for them? Is it, do they have kids? Do they have a family? Do they have uh, hobbies that they like to do? Do they want to be on call 60 hours a week? Probably not. Do they want to work 55 hours and then be on call through the weekend? Probably not. Are they living on the property? Yes, no, maybe. It doesn't matter, right? Uh, in some cases. But you want to make sure that you're appealing to their, their sense of, of self and self-worth and what they enjoy. To, to keep them as part of the team, but you also want to make sure that you're paying them in a way that encourages good behavior. 
So you put checks and balances in place to make sure that, you know, the asset manager, property manager conversation, right? You need to be on budget. Okay, well, my budget is stupid because we've got all these old things in the basement of this unit that where our storage is and they're all covered in six inches of dust. We're not going to use those. Okay, well, let's look at it and we'll figure out a way to do it. So you incentivize them to stay, you know, the, the, maybe not the property manager, but the maintenance manager. Keep these particular pieces and parts at this level, don't cost us too much money, don't tie up too much cash by filling this with hundreds of things that are gonna take four years to use, don't do that. Maybe we'll bring in a system like Appfolio has built in where you have a, a maintenance recording table for all the stuff you stock in inventory, and then as it gets used, orders are automatically generated, or maybe we have a sales rep from somebody come in and, and walk this and take a tally and tell you what to order. But you start by building those processes and that backbone and you don't let them. If it already exists, it's easy to plug and play. If you're trying to build it from scratch, every company is different and every culture is different and you don't know. And there's always going to be turnover and churn anytime you change anything because people do things the way they do. Like trying to change a, a maintenance guy from another company who's been at a property for 10 years and telling them, hey, listen, I know you're used to doing this, but we need to do this instead because all these copper pipes on this property are hitting 50, 60 years old and they're starting to pinhole. So we're going to start running, instead of more copper, we're going to PEX everything. When you go into a unit and you have a call, you just replace it all with PEX. I don't care what it is. You're doing a faucet swap, you're doing a changeover, PEX it. Be done with it. We're not, we're not going to play that game. Um, and you get pushback and some people leave and, it, and it's part of doing business, but it comes down to incentivizing them to fit in your company culture and reward them for good behavior. So I've got a client I've been working with. He's got 140 doors that he manages. They're scattered sites, singles, multis, doubles. He doesn't have any big multifamily. The biggest I think he's got is like 10. And he's trying to figure out how to scale. And part of it is building systems so that his guys know where they need to be, when they need to be there. So he's using Appfolio, he bought the iPads, he's got the phone tie-ins, he's got everything automated through the portals on the website now, he's doing all this crazy stuff, but he's incentivizing the guys to do the, the maintenance call once and do it right, and he, he bonuses them when there's no callback for 30 days. So if they go to fix a toilet, they do it the correctly, no callback for 30 days, they get a kicker in their paycheck at the end of the next month. And it's different for everybody. Every company has different cash flow that they need to watch and different budgets that they, they need to afford for employee benefits and incentives and all the other stuff. So it's got to be a team effort. This whole thing has to start at the top. It's a strategy from the C-level that has to be rolled out, but you have to get buy-in from the field. And that's mm -hmm. where the company culture and, and being consistent as an organization matters, which is where the standards come in and establishing vendor relationships and vendor scorecards and and you build these things and these systems in the, in the operation, and you don't need to think about it. It's all there. So the decision-making time goes to zero. Oh, this happened. Well, we have a process for that. Oh, this happened. We have a process for that. There's a lot to it, and it's different for everybody. I've never walked into two operations and seen the same issues, but the issues in property management are pretty universal. So it, it, there's only so many ways you can put a puzzle together and have it look like the picture you're trying to, to build. Mm-hmm. How do you, when you're, I guess, bringing people in and you're onboarding, right? You're absorbing people from other properties. You've, you acquired, what, three properties in the last 12 months, basically? Mm -hmm. How does that look? Are you bringing experienced people in from your other properties to say, hey, this is how Jake and Gino do this. This is, this is our method. This is our process. 
we're going to onboard you. Here's the time frames. Do you have somebody from another property come and train them up and actually help them run the property for a while? Or, or what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends as you grow. When you first start, and I don't want anyone getting into this business being completely overwhelmed. You know, when Jake and I started, the 25 unit, 36 unit, the second deal, 136 unit, the third deal, we just learned. And it was very different. The I'm a mentality was there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But as you start growing, we have regionals now. We have a COO right now. And we actually have Chelsea. She's a rock star. What she does, she was on the property uh, on Monday last week. She was actually on there. She's going to onboard the property manager. Unfortunately, the person that we had, usually when you take over a property, the culture is not there. There's a reason why you're buying a property for 72000 a unit when rents are 700 bucks and they should be 1400 bucks. Because they're reading Danielle Steele's smutty books. They're not doing their job. That's the reality. The reality, <laughs> the reality is they're just at the, at the steering wheel. They're, they're, but it's not only their fault. It, it's it's you know, the ownership's fault. So we want to blame the property managers once again. They're just, that's their expectations. They're being led by somebody who shouldn't own this property. And the property was owned by a trust. So once again, it was a huge, huge pain point. They wanted to get rid of it. But what we've done is Chelsea will come in and we'll hire, trying to hire for culture. And it's, it's interesting because you can hire property managers from other property management companies. That sometimes work. If they're, if they're willing to, if they can have 10 years of experience, 30 of experience. They can be the ones that if they have the emotional intelligence, they're like, well, this is a great organization. They've got 80 people as employees. Let me see how they do it. Or you have the ones that are like, I've been doing this forever. I know everything. This is how I do it. And it's like, you know what? It's, it's just not going to work. I would tell everybody, go to these high-end restaurants. Go to the Ruth's Chris of the world. Go to the steakhouses of the world. You may find amazing people working there, and we have. We've got a couple on our staff that are really trained up in, in customer service and really trained up in how to deal and have that emotional and really deliver that superior uh, experience to the resident. And you can teach them. If you've got a system in place, they can learn your system. That may be one way to quote-unquote hack the system, or if you're out there, you're trying to hire property managers, and you're finding that you're having problems because every time they come on, it's like, well, I don't use that folio. I use Buildium and I don't like this system. And we do a seven day turn. You're just going to have to set the expectation on the front end is this is how we do our systems. Are you willing to work within these parameters? And if not, you could just go out of the process and go look for people who you think are good fits for property management. Absolutely. I think, I think the systems are all essentially the same. And when you get pushback on something, it's a coachability thing whoever's in charge of them for their first 60 to 90 days will make or break their career. Like if you've got a schlub who doesn't walk the walk, but talks, mm -hmm. yes. then they're going to fail. Their, their employees are going to fail. So it's the leadership in a lot of cases. It's the, is this somebody who's going to show up at 530 in the morning at the office and start their day? Or is this somebody who's going to expect other people to show up at 530 in the morning and walk in at nine? And that's going to set the tone for the office because what's good for you is good for me. Regardless of what you say, I understand you're my boss, but I'm going to emulate you because I'm learning. And if this is the environment I'm in, this is what I'm going to do. Like you have to show up and it's how you show up mm -hmm. that matters maybe even more than what you're teaching these people. When you're done, right? Property stabilized. Everything is there. How are you incentivizing your employees to want to do more? Like you said, you have regionals now. Are they coming from internal? Are you developing people up and into those roles when they're a good fit? Um, what does that look like for you guys? 
Well, we do have bonuses. So bonuses do go out to hit certain metrics with NOI. But more importantly, I think the best thing that we've done in the last couple of years, what we do is we allow our employees to invest in our deals. Oh, that's perfect. we, We call it the Golden Ticket Club. And it's dollar for dollar. No wow. fees, no nothing. So an employee's been with us for two years, they can invest in a deal with us. And we've had the last five deals, we've had employees invest in our deals. You know, if they, and and the, the amazing thing is you see property managers, you know, invest $10,000, all of a sudden, 18 months later, they get a check for 14,000 because they, you know, deal refinance, they get all their money back and they're still cash flowing every month. That will change the mindset of most people on this planet because all of a sudden, you're not saying to yourself, how should we raise rents? Now you own it. Now you're an owner. And it's like, wow, we need to raise rents. Why aren't we doing these maintenance calls? What's going on? It's just, it's just astounding. Going from socialism to capitalism, when people have skin in the game, it's truly, I, I love seeing that. I love seeing people make that switch to uh, having that victim mindset, then all of a sudden having the ownership and the responsibility mindset to having a piece of something and saying, wow, I can, make, I can make a difference, and not only can I make a difference, I can make money doing it, and that's what I'm there for. That, if you can get to that level where you can have employees start investing in your deals, what we have to do is we create, obviously create a syndication because it is a security because they are, they are typically not working full-time on that deal. They're investing passively. So just go through, go, go through the, the, the legal hoops that you have to through, through an attorney, let them talk about it. It's been really pretty cool to see uh, as far as the deals go. So we don't, we don't raise any outside capital. The deals that me and Jake do, we just, we just internal, is from our employees. And we typically bring about 85 to 90% of the capital, about 10 to 15% is from the employees. That is beautiful. That's awesome. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank and you. it's my, uh, my wife... Uh, her company just sold, but they were an ESOP for about 10 or 11 years, um, oh, which is an great. employee owned. Having skin in the game is a very big deal for everybody. And I think that's awesome. I think that's a great idea. I'm actually surprised. It, it's honestly the first time I've heard anybody say that. And it's genius. Like, yeah. All right. I wish I'm I could take credit. One. I wish I could take credit for it. I just think Jake at one point said, I think this is a great way to, great way to retain talent. Because I vehemently hate the 401k. I think it's the biggest scam on the planet. Why would I want to give the government my money, have it locked up for 30 years, probably make on average 3 to 4% a year once you take away fees and all this crap. And when I retire, if I got 3 million bucks in there, I basically have a million and a half because half of it's going to go back to taxes and to, and, to, and to the rest of that crap. So for us, part of our core values and our culture is we want, we, 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 if we so believe in this vehicle, we want to be able to offer it to our employees. And I think Jake, when he had that epiphany, was like, I think it'd be great to have a maintenance tech go on a property, fix an apartment, and he has a piece of ownership. I think he's going to have to take a little more pride in it. I think he's going to be, he's going to have a different mindset going to that unit and saying, I need to fix that. I need to fix that because at the end of the month, there's cash flow coming in. And if it's not done or it's vacant, I'm going to have less money coming in. That's huge. That is amazing and i'm gonna steal that just so you know this conversation has just made me rip money. off and duplicate my friend that's <laughs> awesome so wow that opens up a whole lot more doors but andy um, i have i have to be honest it is a very lucrative deal for employees i don't know if they understand the amazing benefits and i'm not just saying this to, to toot my horn but if you really think about it they're investing dollar for dollar. There's no acquisition fees. There's no asset management fees. They are partners in this deal. So, but they've been working with us for two years. And the only caveat that I have that I learned from a billionaire in 
Hawaii. I was, went to an event and I was sitting next to him. He's a billionaire, a private equity guy. Wouldn't even know him. His name is Steven Metter. Very, very low key. And he had the same type of system. That, and I was talking to him about it. He says, the only mistake I made was that I'd have employees come. I'd give them equity stake in it. They would leave and go com- compete against me. The only caveat was if you, if you start and you, 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 know, you leave the company, great. But if you leave and go compete against me, I'm just going to buy you. I'm going to buy you back out. So if you want to start something like that and say, hey, I'm giving this money to a property manager. She's getting equity or he's getting equity in this deal. If they go and start their own property management company or go work for a competitor, I have the ability to buy that property manager out of his or her share because the benefit is so huge. I mean, if you're, in, if you're working for an entity and you're a property manager and you can buy a deal or be part of a deal for the next five years, at the end of year five, that deal in year one and year two may have already refinanced or you may have already sold and got, and got crystallization of equity. And you're probably gonna make more money from that than your paycheck. Then you have ownership. So it's such, there's so much massive benefits. And then you're, obviously you are, I don't wanna say dragging on the owner's coattails, but the owner's got all the infrastructure in place. The owner has all those economies mm-hmm. of scale and your 30 unit is getting massive benefits from the other 1,700 units. So there's so many benefits to it. So I think you really need to lay it out to the employees to say, hey, if you go out and you go and put your money into a syndication, they're going to feed a death. You're not even going to know if, if, if the business plan is accurate. You know what you got here. So just understanding, letting them understand the value that that offer you're giving them is truly a really cool deal for them. That is huge. And it's way better than the 401k all day long. Um, the 401k, I see it as, okay, you're going to put it in there. Your employer is going to give you a match roll it over every year once the match hits and it's finalized and you can right without penalty roll it over into an ira if you've got the ability roll it into a roth pay the income tax don't do it in new york state pay the income tax put it in a roth and then tax the seed and not the crop and just do it every year right you need you need to just avoid those 10 percent penalties and all the other crap don't do it if you're in new york california right where there's a crazy income tax wait until you're in a free state where you can where you can roll that over and not pay the state just to just to show up and and make the money right you're doing this for a reason you want to build wealth you want to build generational wealth you want to do the right thing for your family you want to leave something behind that that's tangible that can maybe like make your kids lives easier Maybe they don't want to be property managers. Maybe they don't want to be real estate investors. Maybe that's not their thing. Great. But cash is king, right? Don't leave them a house in New York State that they have to sell and divide the, the, the profits or have people argue about who's going to move in and who's not. Like These are all stupid things that don't, don't help build a family relationship. Having all the stuff, all your legacy set in place running your legacy like a business and making those decisions up front, knowing what human nature is and knowing how things happen when money is involved. Like, I love the fact that Jake and Gino are still Jake and Gino after 10 years and doing business together and still friends. Like, that's a big deal that you don't see a lot. A lot of people get into business with partners and before long, they're not friends anymore. They don't want to hang out. They don't want their families hanging out. They don't want anything to do with each other. And they can't wait for one guy to be like, I'm out, I'm, you know, buy me out or dissolve the company and liquidate the assets between two different companies or whatever. Like there's, there's nightmare stories everywhere of partnerships that have gone sideways. And you guys have, 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 I think your work ethic and how you do things and, and how you think about the business 
is inspiring, quite frankly, because it doesn't happen enough. There's so many horror stories of people who are like, oh, this guy's a great guy. I want to be a business partner with him. And they get into business together and a year down the road, the entire thing is disintegrating and they hate each other. Anybody listening, it's values-based decision-making. What are your values? What's your psychology of money? What is your relationship with money? What is your, your partner's relationship? Understand all of those because those all fall into play. And I think that I've gotten pretty clear on it and Jake's gotten pretty clear on it. And we just want to build a business that we're growing 20% a year. We don't have to do any stupid deals. If we can buy a couple hundred really good units, continue to manage them and continue to run what he calls a well-oiled machine. That's what our goals are. Figure out where your goals are for 2024. That's beautiful. I love it. So I guess the, uh, the, the last thing, since we're coming up on an hour, um, the last thing I want to pick your brain, and I appreciate your time, Gino. It's awesome. This has been a great conversation, and I think it's going to be hugely enlightening. When we're looking at value add, outside of just, right, I'm a, big, I'm a big proponent of doing the right thing when you're managing an asset. So instead of just adding to the rent, Right. Yes. If there's a if it's a distressed, non-performing, underperforming property that needs work, you're going to raise the rent. That's an NOI increase. Right. Running things efficiently. That's kind of like 201. Right. You you pay less for your products. You leverage your buying power. You do all this stuff. So 101 is raise the rent. 201 is fix your what you're buying and how you're buying it. 301 adding amenities. Right. So in unit washers and dryers, parking passes, maybe some covered parking, maybe some some amenities on the property that allow you to to get, you know, gym gym memberships and that kind of stuff. What's value add 401 for Jake and Gino? What does that look like for you guys? It's interesting. You've broken it down. And let me let me give people a framework that, you know, we have and we teach our students and it's really fee based. I think the fees for us, they average between 10 and 15% wow. of, of gross revenues because we use non-refundable moving fees. Those are huge for us. We love them. They're like surety bonds. They're not, they're not insurance, but it's a great process for us down south here because you can get a four or $500 non-refundable moving fee, which hits the income statement day one. You keep that. It goes into a pool. But the great thing about it is there's no security deposits. We don't want to have that confrontation. We don't want to be able to <laughs> you know, deal with security deposits. So that's something that we've been using Focus on, I guess, that looking at it and seeing what the current owner has. Three types of fees we break them up into. One is upfront, upfront fees, app fees, pet fees, security, non-refundable move-ins. What does that upfront fee look like for your property? That's important. The second one is recurring. What are the recurring fees on the property? Do, do you even have recurring fees? We're talking about rubs, ratio utility billing system. We're talking about pets. We're talking about short-term leases. We take over properties that are doing month-to-month. Well, there's a fee to going month-to-month and make sure that you're charging that. Um, renter's insurance. Do you have a renter's insurance where you can actually make money on renter's insurance? And the third one is occasional. Those occasional fees where if there's trash left outside, you're penalizing them. There's late fees going on. There's breaking the pet addendum fee. There's a break lease fee. Those are the occasional fees. Take a look at how your fee game is compared to what you're buying. Now, if you're buying a property that has high rents, maybe they don't have the fees broken out. They're just throwing it into the rents itself. But understanding that there's, there's a huge value-added component to that. And I think the 4.0, you know, Jake wants to become the Chick-fil-A of apartments. That's his goal. His goal is to have that customer service. And if you can do that in the C space, I'm not saying we're anywhere near that, but if you can at least try to aspire to that and try to deliver some type of quality customer service and a quality experience for your residents, like you said, on average, you know, residents 
every 50%, 50% of your portfolio turns over every year, 40, 50%. If you can drop that down to 25 or 30% and have the majority of them stay, man, not only does it create culture within your company, it creates culture within your property. And then all of a sudden people want to live there and you can get a premium from that as well, Andy. Well, I think taking care of your, your, your space, taking care of your property well, showing it respect in probably 90% of cases will do, your tenants will do the same, right? They have something that's nicer than maybe where they've mm-hmm. been before. Yes. They don't want to screw it up. Especially if it's like, I don't know if you guys do mm-hmm. any LAHTC or, or Section 8 stuff, but if they're on one of those programs, it, it, you know, a lot of what used to be 20 years ago, Section 8 was a sure thing. 10 years ago, Section 8 was a, eh. Nowadays, it's like, ah, oh, Section 8 doesn't really mean much because they don't really care if they lose because there's other things that they're just going to go and get instead. And so that level yes. of respect, that level of consistency, that level of I'm going to take care of this apartment, that's not the way it was. Ten- like, people are still big and, oh, Section 8's a sure thing. Yeah, not really. No, it's not. Not anymore. Not with, not with the, the, the environment we've been in since really since 2019, 2020 is when that, that, I think that other shoe dropped. So, um, what do you guys Section 8 used to get really great rents as opposed to market, right? Section 8 used to get really great rents uh, as opposed to market. Now there's a case to say market rents are probably very similar to where Section 8 is. So if you like to be, have that bureaucratic process where you got to deal with the government and, and you have property managers that are aligned with that, and that's what your system's like, great, you can go to that. We just don't, we don't really like deal in that space. So. I don't, uh, I'm a big free market guy myself. So like everything I do is based off of the, the risk reward, you know, do this now. It pays mm-hmm. for itself later. There's not a lot of that that's, that's put up with in the Section 8 government world. You look at the LAHTC programs and they literally just put these things together and then suck all the life out of them over however long it's in the program, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And by the time it's yeah. done... Like there's one here that the guy's been trying to sell since 2018. I've gotten brokers who've called me to try and find a buyer for it like six different times. And it was built in, I think, 97 or, or 98, completed, still has original kitchens, original fixtures, original lighting. Like it's brutal. They've deferred maintenance on roof repairs and just the walkways, broken concrete, driveways all need to be resealed. There's weeds growing up out of them. It's a, free, it's a frequent call spot now for the, for the police department. They're there every day. Like, that's a, that's a property. The guy wants 31 million bucks. He wants one point, he wants 122 a unit for it. And it's like, guy, it's, it's worth, yeah, this is no way. It's worth 50 a unit maybe because it needs so much. Every unit needs 15 yeah. to 20,000 in rehab. There's no way he's ever going to get that. So he's just going to keep sitting on it. He's never going to sell that thing. It's in a great location. It could be turned around to become a nice B minus property, but it's in New York. And the guy's out of his mind. It's a $20 million property he's trying to get $31, 33000000 million for. It's not, it's not going to happen. So anyway, more power to him. Nope. Gino, I appreciate you coming on. Everybody listening, Gino Barbaro. Gino, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your course, what your website is, where they can find your podcast. Lay it all out for us. Jakeandgino.com is the hub. Just go to the website. You'll see the podcast. We have the Jake and Gino Show. I do a podcast with my wife on family and communications. I love that show. And Movers and Shakers podcast where we interview our students. Just go to the website. You'll find everything there, Andy. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you. I hope everybody out in 
whatever format you're digesting this in has enjoyed the show. So if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that bell and subscribe. If you want, leave us a comment on the episode. We'll make sure that we get some answers for you if you have questions. If you are listening on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever it is, please make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and as always, go do real estate. Thank you so much.